Shalom, this is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Abrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, I pray that as we Open up your word today that you will speak boldly into our hearts and our lives, that it will be your word heard and received, that nothing in me will be involved except that which you have ordained specifically for this process. Father, I pray that you will breathe new life in us uh, this morning as we dig into your word and that you will uh, embolden us and prepare us to go forward into the world around us to preach the good news of Messiah Yeshua. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. And everyone says, Amen. So this week we are in Parsha Yitro, which is um, uh, begins with Gen- uh, Exodus. I'm sorry, not Genesis. Exodus chapter 18, um, and uh, flows through the Sinai account in Exodus 20, and the giving of the Ten Commandments, and ultimately Israel's uh, rejection of hearing the voice of the Lord any further. Um, but if you have your scriptures, I want to ask you to go and open up to, to Exodus chapter 18. We're, 18. we're going to begin by looking kind of at Jethro and in particular his encounter here with Moses. A lot of times as we're moving through Parsha Yitro, we tend to focus heavily on the Sinai experience. We tend to focus heavily on the presence of, of God at Sinai upon his voice, upon the words of the Aseret Hadibrot, the ten words of the Ten Commandments. But I actually want to backtrack just a little bit, and I want to focus on a little bit of a different uh, kind of angle this morning from this week's Parsha. So Exodus chapter 18, beginning with verse 1, says, Now Jethro, uh, the priest of Midian and Moses' father-in-law, heard about everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel and how Adonai had brought Israel out of Egypt. And we're going to skip down to verse 8. Moses told his father-in-law all that Adonai had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, as well as all the travail that had come upon them along the way and how Adonai delivered them. Jethro rejoiced for all the goodness that Adonai had shown to Israel since he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, blessed be Adonai who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and he has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now, I know that Adonai is greater than all gods since they had, uh, since they had acted arrogantly against them. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, presented a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. Aaron also came along with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses, Moses' father-in-law before God. So, It's really interesting as we're looking at this Parsha because we recognize Moses, uh, as we talked briefly during Q&A this morning, Moses spent 40 years in Egypt uh, being, in essence, groomed, if you think about it in all reality, he he was raised as Pharaoh's grandson, he was in essence being groomed ultimately to potentially become a Pharaoh of his own at some point. Uh, he spends 40 years in Egypt, and then he takes off running, right, because he kills the dude and, and the uh, Israelites who were fighting. He comes out and gets onto them, and they say, oh, well, you're going to kill us too? And he takes off running because he's afraid for his life. And he spends 40 years out in ultimately the wilderness, 40 years in Midian with Jethro and his household. He marries Jethro's daughter, uh, Zipporah, uh, has a couple of kids with her. As a matter of fact, the names of those two sons are actually prophetic realities as we see Moses kind of re-entering this idea of his own heritage as 
uh, one of the, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as an Israelite, not as an Egyptian. Uh, he spends 40 years with uh, uh, Jethro and his family in uh, Midian and in the wilderness. And then he has a Sinai experience. He heads back to Egypt. And when he goes back to Egypt, it's 40 years from there till his death. He lives about 120 years. And it's really interesting to see these segments of his life and in particular what we witness because of his interaction with Jethro, right? He lives in Yitro's household uh, with him. He, he herds his, his flocks and so on and so forth. Uh, and I imagine that before he took off running back to Egypt, that he went back to his father-in-law. It's clear from this week's Parsha, it's clear from the book of Numbers, it's clear from a couple other places that he had a pretty significant respect and adoration for his father-in-law. So I imagine that he had went back to his father-in-law after the encounter with the burning bush and goes, hey, maybe you can help me figure some of this out and understand what's going on. Let me tell you what just happened. Uh, and explains to him what all just happened. I imagine he had this encounter with uh, Jethro before he went back to Egypt. And I imagine that the entire time that Moses is in Egypt dealing with Pharaoh and his hard-heartedness and the plagues and everything that's, that's going to happen leading up to Israel's expulsion from Egypt, I imagine that sort of in the back of Jethro's mind is this mindset of, but what if? Like, I don't know, I don't, you know, he was a priest of Midian, which if you pay attention to history means he was a pagan high priest. Um, he was not a servant of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was a pagan high priest, right? And so as we look at this, you got to imagine that to some degree, kind of like Jacob with, uh, with uh, Joseph, when Joseph tells his brothers and his dad his dream, and, and Jacob jumps on his case, was like, what, you think your mother and I and all your brothers are going to bow down to you? And then the next thing it says is in kind of this parenthetical almost statement is, but he kept it in the back of his mind from then on, right? And then he appears before Joseph in, uh, in Egypt at the throne of Pharaoh and recognizes, and I think instantly this thing that had been in the back of Joseph's, uh, Jacob's mind this whole time now comes to the forefront as he goes, holy, wow, um, so my bad, uh, clearly happened. Uh, and I imagine this was the case with Jethro. I imagine Jethro didn't quite grasp the whole encounter with the burning bush. He didn't quite grasp this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob thing that, that now Moses is coming back on fire for. You know, when he took Moses in his household, he thought he was just some Joshmo Egyptian. I'm not even confident that he thought he was royalty of Egypt, just that he was some Joshmo Egyptian because he looked like an Egyptian. And then he shows up and comes back from this encounter on Sinai with the burning bush, and he's on fire. And he's like, look, here's what you got to do. Here's what God said to do. And I imagine Jethro's like, okay, <laughs> slow it down. Just go ahead and go do what you got to do, and we'll talk about it later, right? But in the back of his mind, I kind of picture that Jethro is, is sitting on this, and he's processing, and he's letting it tumble around, and he's thinking about it. And then all of a sudden, everything the Lord said he was going to do happens. And Israel is expelled in great force out of Egypt and they rush uh, out of Egypt uh, across the um, Suf, the Sea of Reeds as it's dry, the, the waters parted and they walk through on dry ground and all of these miraculous events happen and then the Amalekites attack and they go to battle against them and they win and, and the Lord provides victory and all of these, these really significant events that are occurring are going on all around them and somehow Jethro was hearing about this. Notice this partially doesn't begin with Moses happened to show up at Jethro's front door, knocked on the door and said, hey, let's have a beer. I want to tell you about what God has done for our people. Instead, Jethro leaves his house and rushes to Sinai to where Moses is at and says, hey, I have heard everything the Lord has done for you. Says Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard about everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel and how Adonai had brought Israel out of Egypt. And he shows up because of what he hears. 
And then Moses relays to him everything that's happened after they've done the, the cordiality of, hey, how you doing? How's it going? Everything good? Let's, uh, you know, it's good to see you. Give me a hug. And then he goes, now let me tell you, sit down. Let me tell you what's going on. Let me tell you what God's done for us. And he, he lays out, Moses lays out for Jethro everything that's happened. And so verse 9, Jethro rejoiced for all the goodness that Adonai had shown to Israel since he had delivered them out of the hand of, of the Egyptians. Jethro said, blessed be Adonai who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that Adonai is greater than all gods since they had acted arrogantly against him. So there's a couple of things going on here. First and foremost, we recognize, as I said a moment ago, uh, that, that Jethro was a high priest of Midian. He served all sorts of gods, right? He was a polytheist as polytheists go. He was all about any god he could create about anything, he was going to worship them. But here he stands before Moses, he says, I've heard everything God has done. It is amazing what he has done, and he blesses the Lord, and he says, now I know that Adonai is greater than all gods. How does he know? Because he believes in all these other gods, and yet none of them do what the Lord is doing for Israel. We think about today, and I read all of these reports coming out of the Mideast and out of underground uh, churches and such out in, uh, in Southeast Asia and China, and I read about how all of these people are coming to faith in these miraculous ways, and, and one of the ways, like especially as I read reports out of Iran and, and Syria and such, is there are people who are devout Muslims who have spent their entire life uh, kind of on that brink border of becoming a jihadi, uh, kind of a, a mindset of Muslim or what have you, but they're devout Muslims and then all of a sudden their kid gets sick or their mom gets sick or their cousin gets sick and they're praying to Allah and they're praying to Allah and praying to Allah and nothing happens. Finally on the whim they go, you know what? Let's try this Jesus dude. Let's see what happens. Let's pray to him and see what happens. Just for kicks and giggles. Let's give it a try. What the heck, right? And they pray to, to Yeshua and all of a sudden miracle upon miracle. Wonder of wonderfuls, uh, wonder of wonders, miracle of miracles. All of a sudden they're completely healed, right? Random show tunes. There you go. All of a sudden they're completely healed. And then they cry out to the Lord and they accept Yeshua's salvation because they've prayed to Allah their entire life and nothing's ever happened. They pray to Yeshua in the name of Yeshua and all of a sudden miraculous things occur. And you've got all these people coming to faith because of these divine encounters. But yet here in the States, we've got so many believers living haphazard lives of quote-unquote faith haphazard lives where we are too afraid to stand firm for what we believe we are too afraid to actually step out and walk we are too afraid to recognize that we serve a God who is all-powerful and all-knowing and is capable of doing exactly what we read about in this Parsha in which he has prepared people's hearts in advance of what he's going to do through us in their lives and we don't walk in that and yet here is Jethro approaching Moses and Moses lays it all out and he turns to the Lord and says, now I know that Adonai is greater than all other gods. And then the next thing he says is, since they had acted arrogantly against them. So we could take this two ways. One is, is we could take it that the Egyptians acted arrogantly against the Lord or that Pharaoh acted arrogantly against the Lord. But even more so, this is Jethro, the high priest of Midian, a polytheist of polytheists, who is saying that all the other gods have acted arrogantly against Adonai. 
And those, those of us that recognize that this idea of spiritual warfare that exists understand that all these fake gods, all of these idols, these false deities that people believe in are really a spiritual reality. These are the enemy playing games upon the body of Messiah, upon the world around us, trying to keep people from accepting salvation and Yeshua Mashiach. And so as we look at this, we recognize that, uh, that, that Jethro is, is starting to have this awakening, the spiritual awakening. And he's coming to this idea of faith. As a matter of fact, in Midrash and, and other places, Places throughout Jewish literature, we see that there is a great respect and reverence for the character that we see in Jethro. Uh, as a matter of fact, it is th- there's quite a bit of argument because we see at the end of this uh, that he ends up going back to Midian, but then he appears again in Numbers, and in Numbers, Moses says, hey, look, we're getting ready to go take the promised land. Why don't you come with us? We'll give you an inheritance with us. And Jethro goes, nah, then we go back to my people. And Moses says, no, 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 you come with us. Come with us. Come see what God's going to do. Come walk with us. And it doesn't tell us that he went back to Midian. And so there's some debate in, in, in Jewish uh, commentary as to whether or not uh, Jethro split again or not or if he stayed with, with, with Israel. But the majority of, of those believe that he became what's called a Gerzedek, a righteous one of the nations who had uh, attached themselves to Israel, who had aligned themselves with the nation of Israel, and in essence what we would call a convert today or a proselyte today. And so we see this, this kind of beginnings of a spiritual journey in Jethro's life. And what I want you to understand is that the reason that this began is particularly because Jethro heard of all the wonderful things the Lord had done. He heard of all of the miraculous divine things that the hand of God had done for his people. We go forward to Joshua chapter 2 and if you remember Israel, as we go into Numbers, Israel uh, is at the, the Yarden, the Jordan River, the, the shores of the Jordan, still in the wilderness side. And Moses says, hey, let's send some spies over. Let's go see if the land's really like God says it is. And these spies go over. There's 12 of them. They come back. Ten of them have an evil report. And then Joshua and Caleb have a positive report. And the ten with an evil report says the land is exactly as God said it was going to be. Everything is perfect. But we can't do this. They're too big. We can't handle it. They're, they're going to wipe us out. We can't. Let's not do this. Let's not. And Joshua and Caleb are screaming out, no, 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 we can do this. So we move forward 40 years later. Actually, I guess technically 38 years later. 38 years later to Joshua sending spies into, uh, into Israel. And they go to Jericho. And in particular, he sends two spies instead of 12. Because only two came back with a positive report. Ten came back with a negative. Joshua's figuring, eh, I got a 50-50 shot, right? Hopefully it works out better than what we experienced. It's, it's okay. But instead, you know, Moses sends them out in public. Everybody sees them. Everybody hears them when they come back. Joshua sends them in private, in secret. They come specifically back to him in secret. And so as they're out there uh, journeying around and, and they come in contact with Rahab, uh, it says, verse 1, then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent out two spies from Shittim, saying, Go explore the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Skipping to verse 8. Now before they laid down, this was while Rahab was protecting them, uh, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and she said to the men, I know that Adonai has given you this land. Dread of you has fallen on us and on all the inhabitants of the land are melting in fear before you. For we have heard how Adonai dried up the waters of the Sea of Reeds before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard about it, our hearts melted and no spirit remained anymore in any one because of you. For Adonai, your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth below. So now 
Please swear to me by Adonai, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you will also deal kindly with my father's house. Give me a true sign that you will spare the lives of my father's, my father, my mother, my brother, my sisters, and all those who belong to them, and save our lives from death. Rahab tells the spies from Israel. Now, this is two spies from the second generation who uh, have heard stories of Israel's journey in the wilderness, who have spent most of their lives in the wilderness, who have recognized that their families have wandered around for 40 years, and now they're going into the promised land. They're standing at Jericho, and here is Rahab, this uh, inhabitant of Jericho, who says, hey, so here's the deal. I know that God is with you, and I, I, I want you to understand that we have been scared to death of you for 40 years. We've been scared of you ever since we heard what God did when he brought you out of Egypt. We've been scared of you ever since we saw what you did at Zion and Og. We've been scared of everything that has happened because we know you're coming here and God has given you this land and we know that the, the land is yours and God is in control. So for 40 years, hold on to this thought, for 40 years the very people that God said there was no hope left for Right? That's why he's sending Israel in to take the promised land. The Canaanites have gone so far beyond reach that God says, all right, we're going to get rid of them and bring Israel in and, and the land will be dedicated to me through them and so on and so forth. Uh, these people who were so far removed from the Lord heard of the mighty and wondrous works of God in Egypt and throughout the wilderness and instantaneously believed and were fr afraid for their life. While our forefathers, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Israelites wandered around the wilderness constantly moaning and griping and complaining against the Lord because we didn't have faith to trust that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. For 40 years we wandered around the wilderness because we didn't believe what we saw with our very eyes. But the people of the nation simply heard what God did. Didn't see any of it. They simply heard what God did and they believed. I want you to understand how powerful the story of the mighty works of God really is. Because you and I as believers in Yeshua Mashiach, you and I as followers of disciples of Messiah, we have a God story. We have been made both Jew and Gentile alike heirs to the kingdom of God. You and I are princes and princesses in the kingdom of God. We are sons of the God of all creation and daughters of the God of all creation. You and I have the greatest story known to mankind. And it is our duty to make sure that the world hears it. It's not necessarily what they see. It's when they hear of the wondrous works of the Lord. We go forward to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, we read about the outpouring of the Ruach HaKodesh, of the Holy Spirit. And then as it happens, all of these uh, people from every tribe and tongue of the world, all these Jewish people, proselytes, are standing at the, uh, the, the, the temple itself. And they see what just happened before their eyes. And they cry out, what does this mean? And Peter begins to preach and he lays out this powerful message before them in which he is telling them of all the wondrous works of God. And as they do so in verse 37, says, uh, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter of the, and the rest of the emissaries, Fellow brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and let each of you be immersed in the name of Messiah Yeshua for the removal of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far away, as many as Adonai our God calls to himself. Verse 40, With many other words he warned them and kept urging them, saying, Save yourselves this from this twisted generation. Verse 41, So those who received his message were immersed, and that day about 3,000 souls were added. And it wasn't just because of what they saw. 
It was because they heard the wondrous works of the Lord. They witnessed the wondrous works of the Lord. And when they heard the testimony of Peter and the other disciples, their hearts were torn in two. And they approached the, the Father and they said, I want your salvation. I want your forgiveness. I want your immersion. 3,000 were saved in one day. Acts 7, uh, we read about uh, Stephen and Stephen standing before the Sanhedrin and they're, they're, they're about ready to stone him because they hear that Stephen's been preaching the gospel and uh, that he's been uh, leading people to the Lord, specifically Jewish people to the Lord and, and the Sanhedrin's upset about it and he stands before them and, and they cry out, hey, Here's your last chance to save your life. What is your testimony? What are you going to do to save your life? What good word do you have to save your life? Why should we not kill you? And Stephen, with great chutzpah, if you don't know what that means, go look it up. With great chutzpah, stands up in front of this community, knowing that he's staring down the barrel of a gun, proverbially speaking, that didn't exist then, knowing that he's staring down the barrel of a gun. And he begins to preach. And he begins to tell them of all of the wondrous works of God from the foundations of creation, the foundations of the nation of Israel, all the way up till that very day. And he begins to share all about it, and he's unashamedly pouring his heart out, making sure that the people that are there are hearing about the wondrous works of God and everything that he has done. He's sharing this testimony of his own life and everything that's happened. And they get even more angry and even more riled up, and they just immediately start to throw stones at him. And they kill him. And then when they're done, they turn around and they go to their leader and they drop their cloaks before him and the remaining stones they had in their hands and they're looking for his approval and he approves of everything that should happen with great joy. And we find out that this guy who's leading them who just approved of the death of Stephen is this guy named Saul, Shaul, Saul, Peter, uh, Paul. Get it all out of whack. This guy named Shaul, Saul, who we know as Paul most often in English. Two chapters later, Paul has an encounter with the divine presence of God and comes to faith in Yeshua Mashiach and becomes one of the strongest voices out of the entire Brachadashah for seeing the message of all the wondrous works of God go forward into the world. I honestly wholeheartedly believe that the reason we read randomly about Stephen's testimony, nothing else comes from it. It's just there, and we recognize that God doesn't waste words. He doesn't mince words. If it's there, it's there for a reason. I wholeheartedly believe that the reason we read about Stephen's last testimony before the Sanhedrin is because Stephen is who God is using to break the heart of Paul, to rend his heart, just as Rahab and her household's heart was torn for the Lord. Because two chapters later, we see Paul come to faith. It's all based on people hearing the wondrous works of the Lord. You and I have a unique opportunity in our lives because as believers in Yeshua Mashiach, we have the opportunity to share the reality of what God has done in our lives with each and every person we come into contact with. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we have the chutzpah to stand boldly and proclaim and and sometimes we may cower back. Sometimes the Lord leads us specifically to do so and we follow suit. And sometimes he leads us to not do so and we follow suit. Sometimes he leads us specifically to do so and we follow suit. And sometimes he leads us specifically to do so and we don't follow suit. How many of you have been at the grocery store and felt the Lord put it on your heart to go talk to somebody? And I'm just too busy, God. I got this, I got this, I got this, I got this. I, got this. I don't have time for this, Lord. Uh, maybe next time, maybe next time. We rush through the line and we get out the door. At the gas pump wherever else it may be. It's amazing how often we are so quick 
to write off when the Lord wants to use us to speak of His wondrous and mighty works in a way that may be able to change somebody's life. See, I want you to understand that one of the greatest resources that we have as believers in Messiah Yeshua as part of the body of Messiah is our testimony. It is one of the greatest resources we have because in our testimony we are able to share about what God has done for us. I stand here before you today not because there's anything special about me but because of what God has done in my life as he's brought me to this point. Look, I literally stand here today when I shouldn't be. There are numerous times in my life where I am supposed to be dead and yet I'm here. I have had car accidents that should have killed me but by the grace of God and his divine protection, I am here. I was diagnosed with what they presumed was a hole in my lung, uh, bronchitis that was so severe that if I walked out the front door, I was going to die, and asthma that should have killed me all at the same time. The doctors were completely mind-blown when we show up two weeks later for follow-ups and prognosis and to figure out what to do for treatment. Uh, they had expected, and, all, and I don't say this jokingly, the anticipation when we left the doctor's office the first time was that I was going to spend the rest of my life in a bubble. We show up two weeks later for follow-ups. They couldn't find anything. We spent that entire two weeks in prayer with people praying over me, laying hands on me, anointing me, praying over the, my, my body that the Lord would move and heal. And the doctors were completely mind-blown, and some of them were very annoyed that they couldn't find anything. They had no explanation at all. I was a kid at the time. My dad goes, I know exactly what happened. Sit down, let me tell you. I have had so many things in my life that the enemy has tried to use to keep me from following what God wants to do, and yet I stand here today because I want to speak forth of the wondrous works of the Lord. I want people to understand that the same God that met Israel at Sinai, the same God that provided victory through the battles in Canaan, the same God that struck fear in the hearts of those in Jericho and throughout the land of Canaan before they ever saw the cloud of the dust of Israel's mighty numbers wandering through the wilderness, simply because they heard of the wondrous works of God. I want that God to work through me. I want him to use me to impact people's lives. Your testimony is one of the most powerful resources you have because your story is God's story. It's not yours. Anything that's happened in your life by the hand of God is not because of anything you are or have done, but instead because of everything that He is and has done and everything He wants to do through you for others. It's important, though, that as we share our testimony, and uh, Robbie gave me an uh, unrequested shameless plug for my book earlier, and I'll follow suit with that uh, for, for just a brief second, but in my, in my book, one of the things I talk about is that we live in what is often called a, a uh, post-truth era. In other words, most of the world around us doesn't believe in a finite truth, right? Uh, I spend 10 minutes on, spend three minutes on YouTube. You can find that out pretty quick. Most people don't believe in a finite truth. What may be true to Monty may not be true to Robbie, and what may be true to Robbie may not be true to me, right? Most people don't believe in a finite truth, but yet we believe in a finite truth. We believe wholeheartedly, 100% without a shadow of a doubt, that we serve a God that encountered the nation of Israel and spoke audibly to them. We believe that we serve a God who put the plagues upon Egypt and brought Israel out with his mighty hand. We believe we serve a God that brought forth David as the, uh, the, the uh, predecessor, the forefather of Yeshua Mashiach. We believe that we serve a God that has, in fact, provided salvation through his one and only son for us. These are things that we believe wholeheartedly are unquestionably true. 
But the world around us doesn't believe that there is a finite truth. And so what happens is as we tend to begin to tell our testimony, which is his story, a lot of times our lives aren't in alignment with what we're talking about. And the world around us that doesn't believe in a finite truth, the world around us that is wholeheartedly bought into this post-truth, post-truth era, they can see right through the show we're trying to put on. And when we try to tell about the wondrous works of God, they can look at our lives and go, oh, you may believe it, you don't live it. Your life is not in alignment with what you're asking for. When we cry out, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, do we really want to see that? Because part of seeing that is forgiving others as we have been forgiven. Do we really want to forgive others? Do we really live out what we wholeheartedly believe from the Word of God in our lives day in and day out? When we begin to share our testimony, which is His story, do people see Him while they hear us? We must make sure that our life is in complete alignment with the Ruach HaKodesh. Nothing can destroy the effects of our testimony more than people not seeing God in us while we talk about God through our mouth. Nothing can demolish or destroy what God wants to do through our testimony than if people do not see God in us. Think about the fact that Jethro appears to Moses and the nation of Israel at a very important period of time. The very next thing we read about and most of the, the sages and rabbis of Judaism believes that it is likely Jethro was still there when this occurred. The next thing we read about is the divine presence revealing himself to Israel and him making an eternal covenant, not just with individuals in the lineage of Israel, but with Israel as a whole. But Jethro approached Moses. He appeared before the nation of Israel because he heard of the wondrous works of the hand of God. And then when he got there, he saw a man wholly devoted to the Lord. He saw a man wholly devoted to the Lord. We must make sure that our lives are in complete alignment with the Ruach HaKodesh, with the Holy Spirit if we're going to share our testimony with others. We spoke just a few weeks back and uh, here shortly, uh, and I'm hoping to have dates for you in the next week or so, here shortly we're going to begin a discipleship training course here at the synagogue. And we spoke about discipleship for several weeks in the message uh, in, in our services here at CMC. Um, and one of the unique things about discipleship is you can disciple people all day long uh, with what you think is discipleship. You can disciple them all day long. But if they don't come out of that discipleship uh, time with you, understanding that they have a story of what God has done in their lives that they need to share with the world, then we probably wasted a lot of our time. Because it's not just us being able to regurgitate what we read in the Word. But the world has to see how the Word, which is living and breathing, is active in our lives. And so when we are trying to share our testimony, a lot of times we will spend forever talking about everything that has ever happened in our lives when the reality is, is we don't live in a world where people can pay attention that long anymore, right? You ever watch uh, a TV show or a movie from 15 years ago? You don't even have to go all the way back to, to 40, 50 years ago. You watch a TV show from 10, 15 years ago and you watch one from today of the same quality, same uh, kind of storyline because they're all repeating themselves anyways. You watch same quality, same kind of storyline and what you notice is that 
the scenes changed significantly rapid, more rapid today than they did 15 years ago. That the angles change more rapid. I think it's something like every four seconds or six seconds that angles and scenes and all of these has to change in order to keep the attention of the viewer anymore because we no longer are locked in at that rate anymore. So if they have a single camera and a single person for more than six seconds, you lost your audience. And we don't understand how that works. And so we'll begin to tell somebody our testimony. We want to start all the way back at day one. 37 years ago and some change, I was born. And most people are going, okay, cool, you lost me. <laughs> I, let's, let's synopsis. Let's bring this a little closer, right? Let's, let's make this a little... When we're giving somebody our testimony, we're sharing our testimony, it's for the purpose of the person we're speaking to hearing of the wondrous works of God in our lives so that their hearts are ripped, so their hearts are torn, and that they are willing and open to receive what the Lord has in store for them. Yeah? And so if we're going to tell our story, if we're going to share our testimony, which is really the story of God, there's really only three key things that need to exist in that story. One is who we were before Messiah. It doesn't need to be a long story. Odds are the people you're talking to have been through some of the same garbage you've been through. Odds are you've probably been through worse than some of what they're going through, if we're honest about it. It simply needs to be a story that tells who you were before Messiah. Because they need to understand that we were where they were. And that the Lord has brought us to where we are now and could do the same for them. The second thing that it needs is it needs to talk about how you came to accept Messiah. How did you come to faith? The first time you heard about the message of salvation, what was your reaction? Were you angry? Were you curious? Did you think it was a bunch of garbage? What was your reaction? What ignited your burden to go deeper? And how did you ultimately come to faith? And what was your salvational experience? And then last but not least, the third and final thing that that, that, that story needs to have, that your testimony needs to have, it's who you are with Messiah. But here's the thing. You can talk about number three all day long, but if you don't live it, don't talk about it. If your life is not in alignment with number three, don't even bring it up. As a matter of fact, before you bring up number one, make sure you're not the old man anymore. Before you talk about who you used to be, make sure you're not anymore. Make sure you are a new man bought by the blood of Messiah who has experienced the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah Yeshua in your own life and who is walking in the restorative work of Yeshua's resurrection today. Because otherwise, you're just simply wasting your breath. But here's the thing is the world around us needs to hear your story because your story is God's story. And as we see over and over and over again throughout the Torah, throughout the Nevi'im, throughout the Ketuvim, throughout the Brachadashah, for those that have no clue what those Hebrew words mean, throughout the first five books of the Bible, which is the Torah, throughout the prophets, throughout the writings, throughout the New Covenant, or the New Testament writings, is that there were people that heard of what God was doing first, and then they sought God's move in their life after. People need to hear what God has done in you and through you. And they need to see that what he has done in your life is something that has been transformative. That you have wholeheartedly changed. Because nothing's changed from Jethro's day. As a matter of fact, we're probably pretty similar to how despicable the world was back then. All over again, history simply repeats itself. 
But it's necessary that just as Jethro, just as Rahab and her family and the Canaanites heard of all the wondrous works of God's hand, their hearts were, were softened and they immediately were uh, uh, fearful and dreadful. Uh, as we look at Jethro, instead of fearful and dreadful for his own life, he turned his heart to the Lord. He turned to the Lord and said, I know that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the greatest God of all the gods, that he's the only God, and that I will serve him. And the next thing he does is he makes sacrifices to Yeshua, or sacrifices to the Lord, sorry, sacrifices to the Lord, and Aaron and Moses and the elders of Israel sit down and eat of that sacrifice with him. Aaron is the high priest. Moses is about ready to encounter the presence of God. If he sacrificed to idols, do you think he would have been able to go up on the mountain? Do you think the Lord would have called him up? I believe wholeheartedly that because of what Jethro heard of what God did for Israel, that Jethro turned his heart over to the Lord left behind everything that he used to be and used to do and became a new man ready to serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I believe the same is true of Rahab who ultimately becomes in the lineage of Yeshua, in the lineage of Melech David, King David. Over and over and over again we see these things occurring. And it is vitally important that we recognize that you and I have an equal part to play in the redemption of the world around us. Not because of who we are, but because of what he has done for us. And it is direly important that the world hears your story and what God has done for you. Avarachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. We thank you, Lord, for being a gracious God, for being a redeeming God, for being a God who has restored us and renewed us from the mire and the, the muck that was our life. Thank you, Lord, for uh, restoring us and bringing us back into what you created us to be in the first place. Father, I thank you that you continue to speak and breathe through us in ways that impact the world around us. And I ask you, Lord, to continue to move mightily and powerfully in each and every one of our lives, each and every day, that the world around us may know the truth of your salvation and come to understand the power of relationship with you through your Ruach HaKodesh. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen.